welcome to The Artist Appeals. This is Erin Sparler, and I'm your host. In The Artist Appeals, we interview artists, crafters, photographers, and business professionals about the business of art. I hope you'll join us and enjoy the show. Hey, and welcome to The Artist Appeals. In this episode of the Artist Appeals podcast, we're going to talk with a woman that is the CEO and owner of a product group that designs photo albums, scrapbook albums, stationary products. Literally, they design thousands upon thousands of different products that they then retail and sell to some of the biggest chain stores out there. This episode is full of amazing tips and tricks and advice and knowledge about the inner workings of product sourcing and development out there. Her group, her company is MYX Product Group. And our guest today is Patricia Launis. Hello. Hi, Patty. How are you? Hi, Erin. Good. How are you? Awesome. I'm so excited to talk to you. Oh, well, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Oh, you have so much information to share. I'm really excited to uh, interview you today and share some of the stuff that you do. You have a really unique company. You want to tell us a little bit about what your company does just to start? Sure. Well, we are a consumer uh, products design and sales company. So we design all types of products in stationary, home decor, storage, home decor storage type of items. And we sell them to the large retailers like the TJ Maxx's, Ross, Home Goods. We work with Michael's and Joann's and a lot of the big U.S. retailers. We also sell in Australia, Canada, and five different countries in Europe. Brilliant. Oh my God, that's incredible. So you design all this stuff, right? Like how many people work for you? Well, I have four uh, full-time employees. And Mm -hmm. then we have a couple of people that we use if we need extra freelance work. And then, of course, we have our IT support person who is very, very important. So this is a small group. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It's like really important. And um, it's a small group of us and we're all women and we work about 30 minutes outside of L.A. Yeah, we're all Uh a a women-owned and um, women-run company. So we have a lot of fun together. It's a little group. Yeah. And you're the CEO, right? Yeah, I own the company. When did you start this company? And and your company is, I let me see if I can do it, MXY Group? MYX, Mixed Product Group. Mm-hmm. Mixed Product Group. <laughs> you. you got it close. I am it's always close, yes. reversing letters. I'm always switching my letters around. My husband just said to me the other day, are you dyslexic? I'm like, maybe. I don't know. I'm an adult. But it doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter at this point. Right. Well, what I did was, so I've always been in this industry. I've been in, I was in apparel, I started my career as an apparel designer and I specialized okay. in sweaters. And then I moved over into doing kind of what they call home goods and things. And um, mm-hmm. so I've been my whole career in this industry. The company I have right now, I actually bought this company from some friends of mine who were retiring and moving to Portugal. Hmm. And so I bought the company oh, in wow. 2018. Yeah. And it was really, it's been great because it was, it allowed me to kind of continue doing what I've always done and um, acquire a little business and be able to kind of have a platform from which to grow. 
And it's been an interesting kind of year and a half because it was, um, you know, finding the right people. And then we had to move our offices and it was a big year of mm. upheaval and change. And I think this year is uh, our year we're kind of poised for growth. So it's going to be really good. We're excited. Oh, brilliant. That's so cool. And you said you've designed sweaters before. I did. Yeah, I was a sweater designer. <laughs> in like for life. knitting, like <laughs> yeah, like for actually, yeah, but not hand knitting for uh, working on the big industrial knitting machines. So oh. the big machines that make the big high volume sweaters, the big power computerized machines. So that was kind of my first career was designing sweaters and learning how to run those big machines. And um, yeah, so that's, that's how I, that's how I started. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, actually it's really interesting. It's very technical. So it was a lot of fun. Yeah, was that done on the computer and yes. you like in Photoshop or Illustrator like or industry software? No, there's industry software that um you know, we'd sort of start out on paper and then we would go to the computer and put the designs in the computer and it was industry software that actually ran the big machines, the big knitting machines. Mm. So you program the machines the directly from the computer. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so neat. That is fascinating. So what made you decide to get out of that and to buy a business? And how did that all happen? (laughs) Well, so I think what happened for me, Erin, is I I have two degrees. I actually have a science degree and I have a design degree from FIT in New York. And so I've always (laughs) been kind of... those match? I know they don't. So I'm kind of right brain, left brain. So I I went to, I really wanted to be a clothing designer. So that's what I did. And I Mm. worked in New York City and, and then... I've had, you know, I kind of go to corporate America and then I'll go out and do my own business and then I'll go back to corporate America and I kind of go back and forth. And actually the switch from apparel, um, I've been a buyer, I've been a director of sourcing, product sourcing, I've worked in about over 50 different countries sourcing product. So I kind of go back and forth between the creative world and the business world. And The job I had um, that kind of moved me over into hard goods was when Michael's Arts and Crafts actually hired me to be a director of product development and sourcing for them. And previous to that, I was working at JCPenney as a director of sourcing for sweaters. And I was a little nervous about the Michael's job because I hadn't done anything in hard goods before. I'd only Uh been in apparel. No, wait, 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 wait. Stop right there. Okay. Let's just tell our audience what sourcing means. Oh, so sorry about that. So sourcing is basically when you create a product for a large company and you have to find a place to make it. So basically what you do is you sort of, you know, you look domestically, you look all around the world and you find the best place to make the product and you negotiate the costing and the timeline and do all of that. So basically you're placing production for the big orders that these big U.S. retailers have to have in order to run their business. Yeah. So you basically go out and source it. And the design uh-huh. team and the product team will come up with an idea. And basically what uh-huh. they'll do is they'll pass you um, kind of what's a spec pack and you go out and find somebody to make it. And it could be anywhere in the wow. world, really. Wow. So you got to travel a lot. A lot. Yeah. I think I've been to, <laughs> 70, to 70 different countries. Oh, brilliant. So cool. That sounds so exciting. <laughs> It does sound exciting. The reality is um, it can be very exciting, but it's um, <laughs> it's put me in Probably a lot also of really... also very tiring. It is. And you really run into a lot of interesting situations, but, um, but really you learn a lot about business and you learn about how to cost a product. You learn mm-hmm. what goes into making products. And mm-hmm. I think all of that's very, very important 
just to under, yeah. have an understanding of that. Yeah. What do you think is a great way for somebody who's just starting out to get some their feet wet in that kind of experience? Because that's really like high end. Like you sourced for some big companies. Big, big companies. How do yeah. you learn some of this about creating a product, say taking your art? So one of the things that I always talk about is this appeals process where I'm trying to categorize all these elements, you know, making your art and then turning it into a product. And then presenting it and then educating your audience, amplifying through automation, licensing and contracting and and success. And so we just talked about what you make, the art, and now we're hitting on product really quickly, which is cool. But what's a good way for somebody that was maybe just getting started to learn a little bit about turning their art into a product? You got any ideas, tips or tricks? Yeah. So I think a really interesting thing for me is that I have a lot of friends who are artists who make things and who sell at, you know, craft fairs and, yeah. you know, renegade craft fair and do things like that. And, you know, it's really all the same process. It's just a matter of right. scale, right? So it's the, right. the process of getting something made is basically the same. You just scale it up or scale it down, depending on how many units you're going to make. And so there's all mm-hmm. different kinds of things out there, Erin. There's people who really want to control the process and make every single thing that they sell. And that's more of an right. artisan type of a, a product. And I think that's great. I have some friends who do that and are very successful. Yeah, quality control to its extreme. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, you know, it's, there's really a place for that in the market. You know, there's really people who there is. appreciate that. And I just, I attended the Renegade Craft Fair in LA. I think it was in mm-hmm. November. And then I attended the Renegade Craft Fair in London a couple weeks ago. And that's where you really see those people who make really beautiful, handmade, artistic things and are really proud to show them. And it's just, it's always so fun to go in and see that. Mm, I want to go. I go to the Philly uh, craft fair occasionally. There's a Philadelphia craft buyers market where the craft stuff is phenomenal. And they sell to boutiques and and stores, very high-end stores there. So that's a great way for a crafter to get into the market. The Renegade craft fair in LA or in London or the Philadelphia craft buyers market. That's a great idea. Yeah, Yeah. there's a lot of those around the country. And, you know, you really have to have the inventory to be able to do it because I was really surprised at the number Mm. of people that attended, right? There was a lot of people there and um, people seem to really be selling. And so I was very impressed too with the quality of a lot of the products and the variety of the products that were being shown. I think that the, it's interesting because I think when you are the kind of person who's making art or making a product and selling it, you have to really first kind of identify your market and figure out who you are and who you want to sell to. And I think that sort mm. of informs the process, right? Yeah, you got to have a niche. You got to have a niche and you got to figure out, you know, do you want to make one of a kind things? Do you want to make, you know, small production runs of two or 300 pieces? And once you sort of figure that out, that sort of informs where you're going to go to kind of get your things made, right? Because there's a lot of places mm-hmm. that will make things for in smaller production runs. The factories mm. that we work with, they take production runs of maybe a minimum of 1,200 pieces. And then up mm-hmm. to, you know, we, we do things in the 20,000, 30,000 pieces of a style. So we're kind yeah. of on the higher end of that, right? But the process right. is basically the same. Right. And you get a price break for the more you make, right? You do. You do, definitely. Because then all the cost of the raw materials goes down. You know, the cost of the labor in some cases goes down if it's um, if they're able to get the benefit of scale. If something is handmade, you don't really get the benefit of 
like a reduced labor if you have more units, but you mm-hmm. can get a break on your raw materials. So all of that has to be kind of calculated in and figured out. And it depends on where you want to be. The other big piece of advice I would have, and, and this is something that I think people need to do a little more of, is to really shop your competition and really know mm. where people who are in your niche are pricing their products yeah. and who they're selling to. Because a lot of times I'll see somebody and they'll have a great product and they'll put it out right. and it will just be out of the zone of where other similar products like that are priced. And right. They always have a reason, you know, they'll always say, yes, but I make this myself. And, and I say, yeah, but nobody really knows that if they're shopping, say, for example, um, for charcuterie boards, you know, had these, there's these beautiful charcuterie boards Jeez. now that are showing mm. up in, in, you know, where, <laughs> where the, like the, the wood boards that you actually lay your cheese and, and your charcuterie out on those kinds yes, of fancy boards yummy. are showing up now, right. And craft fairs, cause it's kind of a trend. Oh, okay. And yeah. some of them are priced at, you know, $800 and some of them are priced at $100, oh. right? So, oh my and gosh. it's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting because when I look at this, I think, gosh, you know, that's a great idea. And I just bought a beautiful olive wood one over the holidays at Trader Joe's. It was $29, oh. right? Mm. So oh my. you can, my point is there's this gigantic range, like with every type of product, right? right? this gigantic range. Mm-hmm. So you have to figure out, okay, where do I want to be? Where do I think mm-hmm. I can sell the units I need to sell to be profitable, right? Because if you're making $800 mm-hmm. charcuterie boards, maybe you only need to sell two a month and you're fine. But if you're making $50, right. you might need to sell 100 So do you have the space for that inventory? Right. Do you have the space? Do you have the money? Do you know where are you going to sell these? Right. Like thinking through the business aspect of it and really thinking about starting with the end in mind. You know, am I going to need this? Am I going to use my money to pay my rent? Or is this just going to be a hobby and is going to be spending money? Like that all informs where you position yourself. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs Mm. don't really, because they're having so much fun kind of creating their product and because they love it, they think everybody else is going to love it. They kind of skip the whole planning business, what do I want to get out of this process, which helps them then set their price, understand what they need to do. So it's really, if you're going to run it like a business, you really got to think of it like a business. Yeah, I think that's really great advice. You really got to know how many do you have to sell and who you're going to sell them to and where those people are. And is there a market for it? I think that's great advice. Is there a market for it? Because a lot of people fall in love with what they're making and they think everyone else is going to fall in love with it too. And that's why I say go out and look at what your competition is and see if, yeah, you know, who else is making that type of product? Is there a niche for you? And, you know, shop it around to people and, and ask what people think and ask what they think about the price. Yeah. There's a room out there for a lot of different really cool things. It's just that you don't want to make something that's going to sit in your garage, right? And And take up space. <laughs> you want to be able to sell it and market it and, um, right. You know, make some money. So yeah. you have to think that yeah, through. You pay the bill. yeah, definitely. I think that's really a great advice. And then, you know, what comes along with building a product is, is revenue streams, right? Having multiple revenue streams. Do you want to talk about that at all? Well, yeah, I think that's really interesting. Cause I think when you, you know, it's all just depends on the point you are in your business, right? 
So when you start out, a lot of graphic designers get into, that I've seen get into the stationary products business because it's very easy to apply your art to journals and note cards and things like that. And uh-huh. good starting point, I it's guess. It's a really good starting point. And then I have friends, of course, who license their designs as an alternative mm-hmm. revenue stream. So they'll create yeah. designs and license it to different companies. And I think they, they've done, I have some friends who've done very well doing that. But again, it's a business that you have to be careful of because you have to be able to track if you're licensing your artwork and you're licensing it as a percentage of sales, how are you going to track what that company is selling to make sure that you're getting paid enough and getting paid fairly? Mm. So there's a lot of different ways to create revenue streams using your art. Personally, I don't ever like to license from someone because... It's too much work on the back end for us to keep track of the sales and make sure we pay them fairly. I prefer to mm-hmm. buy artwork outright from people okay. if we need if we need art. It just makes yeah. it simpler for me. Yeah, some of the big companies that do the licensing, don't they put in their contracts that you can review their books, you know, once a, a year or once every two quarters or something like that? It's normally in the contract. Yeah, they do. But, they, but you have to do with it. You know what I mean? You have to get it right. and you have to do it and you have to follow up. And, you know, depending on the size of your business and how and how you're running your business, you, you just have to be organized enough to remember to do that and to sit down and take the time to do it because you want to make sure right, you take care of your money, right? Right. Yeah. And they're not going to really do it for you. So you have to keep track of whether they're sending you money. And if they're not, why not? Exactly. Exactly. Interesting. So we talked about art and what you guys make. We talked about product. And then we always go on next to presentation. I try and keep these in the same format to give everybody a different perspective, all the different fields and the different ways you can come about making a living in the creative industry. So what are some of the presentation tips that maybe you might want to give to people? Because you get into big stores. Actually, I talked to Denzel Quick, who's the VP of product development at Spellbinders, and he was talking about POGs, yes, product displays. So you guys must make those yourself to get into the big companies, right? Well, we don't because none of our products, I know Spellbinders products, a lot of times they make those um, displayers to present their products at retail. Our products really sit on the shelf or sit on the wall. So We don't have displayers except for some of our little small piece types, which may sit up at the register, we'll make the displayer. But what the POG is, is that's the planogram. And what a planogram is in the retailer is the space that they're basically setting with your products, right? So what we'll do- It's like a mock-up, right? Yeah, it's, well, I'll give you an example. Um, So for for example, at Michael's stores, they have what they call the POG room. And the POG room is basically a store- (laughs) It's basically a store set up in the warehouse. So you you have oh, your really? actual shelf space that is going to be in all the retail stores across the country. And you go in and you actually, the product development team there and the design team will go in and the buyers will set the POG so that they'll know exactly what products are going to fit on the shelf in the store. So Oh, wow. Cool. Yeah. So it's kind of a mock-up of the store layout and depending on you know, they have A stores, B stores, C stores, and D stores, which have like different kinds of layouts. I didn't know that. Yeah, the buyer will then know, okay, uh, in most, in my A stores, this is the amount of space I have, whether it's 25 linear feet for a side counter, or if it's what they call an end cap, which 
is as you walk Mm -hmm. down the big main aisles of a store, those are the little short ends of the aisles that face you that where they kind of put more seasonal type products. And development companies or sales companies like us will sometimes be invited in to set our products in the POG ourselves. Or we will ship our oh, products. Oh, I want to go. I want to go. Can buyer. I come? <laughs> <laughs> or we'll ship our products out to the stores. And, the um, you know, we are always sending products, uh, UPS across country for different meetings and things. And the buyers will uh-huh. take our products and then they'll set their space in the store. And um, they buy from us depending on what they decide to put in that space. So mm. the goal is, of course, to always try to capture more space. And more products. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how that works. That's just kind of a little overview of how that works. Um, but that is the really other way that we do it is, Yeah, because if you think about it, really what stores are really space, right? And you want to acquire as much retail selling space as you can. And But you have to make sure your products fit in the space that the buyer has allocated for you. So, mm-hmm. so that's one side of it. The other side of it is a lot of our retailers will come into our showroom. And they'll spend the day with us and we basically work through their assortments. If they buy, say, monthly, they want a, they want a delivery to come in every month, to hit the store every month, we'll work through three to six months of deliveries at a time. So when they come to our showroom, we basically have these blank racks up and they'll sort of shop our showroom and pull the items that they want to place the buy on for each of the months that they're working on. And so we make these little mini assortments and then we sit down and write it all up on their paperwork for them. And then they send us the buy. So, so it's almost like a subscription. Well, not really because they, because they pick their assortment depending on their buying month. Right. So they come in and they'll say, Hey, I need to work on, you know, right now they're working on say April, May, June, they'll come in and they'll like pick the products for April and then they'll pick the products for May. So it's like the buyers do a little mm-hmm. shopping trip in our showroom. That's so cool. And how many products do you have on hand for them to shop? Oh, thousands. Probably. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. I, you know, Erin, it's so funny. I, I, I don't ever count them, but um, <laughs> we, have, we have a lot. We have a, we have a showroom full. So I would say probably 1,500 to 2,000 at any one time. Now, Patty, are they all your products? They are. Just from they you are. guys? That is amazing. And the way we work it is that one of the interesting things about our business is that we sell a lot of retailers who are actually competing with each other. So Uh we have to keep everything. (laughs) Yeah. So this is how we manage it. So what we do is when a buyer comes in from a store and picks a product from us, that product gets marked with that store's as proprietary to that store. So we never sell our products to more than one chain store. Once a buyer picks it, they basically own that for their Mm -hmm. retail chain. And that's why we're so heavy on design because we have to keep designing to have new products in the showroom so that they always have something new to pick. So we um, churn through a lot of design work. But you you know, then our products are exclusive to our, we do, we have a big PLM system, which is like a product lifecycle management system, a computer system Uh that keeps track of all of our designs are numbered, named, and given a date. And uh-huh. when they are assigned to a specific retailer, they get matched to that retailer. And we have uh-huh. a very robust computer tracking system that we keep track of everything. Uh, and hence the IT guy. <laughs> hence the IT guy, right? Because 
otherwise it can get very confusing with the amount of designs that we have and the amount of retailers we sell. We have to be very careful that we accurately log and track everything. And that also allows us to go back and pull a design. You know, if a buyer comes to us and says, hey, Mm. I want to rebuy this style from 2018, we can go in, put the number in our system and bring it up and we can keep track of it that way. So that's another part of it. Now, do you use USP codes? Or is it in-house codes that you're using or do you register these with, you know, the codes to identify your products? How are they like generated? The bar, like the barcodes? Yeah, yeah. Well, we do that depending on the retailer. So we usually use the retailer. The re- the factory puts those on for us and they're usually tracked back to the retailer. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, yeah. that is really amazing tracking all that. I hadn't heard of that type of software. That sounds so brilliant. Yeah, wow. we put all our raw cool. materials in there. We put a, It's a raw material database, and it's also a design database. And so wow. we can keep track of, um, you know, we have probably over 50,000 designs in there that we have collected, you know, the companies had collected over the years. And so those are all proprietary designs for us. And so if we have a customer that comes in that requests, for example, designs on baby albums, you know, we can go back to our archives and pull all of our baby album designs, and then we can modify them or change them or do things with them. So we have quite a huge design database. Yeah. And who makes that software? Well, the one that we have is really interesting because it's, ours is called Blue Cherry and it's very old and I don't think they even make it anymore, but we, it works, it's been modified to do what we need it to do. So a lot of these product lifecycle management systems will manage your product development all the way through your EDI of your purchase orders, right? For us, we just needed a really a design warehousing kind of software where we could track all of our designs. So the system, we had to modify Mm -hmm. the system quite a bit to do what we needed it to do. So it's a little bit proprietary. Yeah. You know, part of that is that we're a small company and we can't afford, there's some big systems out there like uh, WebPDM, some of these big systems that like JCPenney has and Nordstrom has, but being a small company, those are just way out of our price range. So we had to kind of modify something for our uses. A long time ago, I did a blog post about the different softwares to track and categorize all of your artwork. Because if you're a prolific artist, you end up creating hundreds and hundreds and thousands of pieces, as you've said, and there really wasn't much right. out there. So I'll have to um, put links to these and, and maybe even dig up my old blog post and share with our audience some of the different options for tracking and monitoring your designs. If you had any tips or tricks, say you were on a shoestring budget, how would you track if you were just getting started? Would you use like a spreadsheet? What, what do you think would be an easy way to do this inexpensively? I would probably use an Excel spreadsheet and make sure that you populate it with photos or do kind Mm. of a combination of maybe a PowerPoint and Excel. I think the important thing is to really keep track of your designs. And we're very careful about when we send out designs, Erin, that we always tag them as property of our company and date them because there's a lot of copying out there. And I know this is another sort of subject that we haven't Mm. touched on yet, but we're very careful when we send out our designs that we log them and keep track of them and date them. And at the Mm -hmm. bottom of all of the sheets of paper that we send out to our retailers, we always say, you know, these are exclusive designs of mixed product group and we have a date. 
just as a way to kind of keep track and protect our own intellectual property, we want to make sure that we identify everything as being ours and Mm -hmm. track it. That's really great advice because I know that if you put the date and your name on a piece of artwork, it's essentially like copywriting it, right? It is. And I think you just want to make sure that you've established a paper trail. I mean, even when I worked for large companies, you know, we and we created our own artwork, say when, you know, I was with Nordstrom, I was with Land's End, Eddie Bauer, I've been at all these companies. Amazing. They don't copyright every they, they don't copyright every design, right? But what they do is they make sure that they date it and that they keep track of it and that there's a paper trail. So that if anything right. ever comes up where somebody's copied the design, they can go back and show that, you know, they created it first. And mm-hmm. basically, you know, once we put things out at retail, we sort of let it go. We don't if our designs are at retail, we figure somebody's gonna come along and look at it and You know, they can copy it. They can modify it a little bit. We just have to just keep creating new designs to kind of stay one step ahead. Right. But we we do really track everything. Oh, I think that's just brilliant because, you know, copywriting an individual piece is like $30. You can copyright a collection, but it becomes very time consuming. So that's a great tip to just keep track of it. I know that um, Drew Brophy always signs and dates all of his surfboards. And he's like a premier Southern California lifestyle artist. And he's been doing it for years and years and years. And it's one of the things that's helped him expand his reach as well. Actually, I think that brings us to the next topic, which is educating your audience. And how do you educate your audience to the benefits of buying your work as to somebody else's and communicating with your target market? So um, how do you guys, since you're providing to the big companies, how do you support them with, with marketing and education? Do you support them at all? Or you leave it up to them or what? Well, you know, this is really an interesting um, question for us right now because we're sort of in the throes <laughs> of thinking about this because we don't right now sell our products online at all uh-huh. ourselves. We only sell through major retailers. And we're talking about how now to enter the online marketplace and sell some of our products ourselves online. And Mm. one of the reasons we want to do it is because we think we'll have more control over the message and educating and and getting in touch with our consumers. What happens now for us is that, yeah, because we sell to these big retailers, basically the only way that we have to communicate our products um, and what's special about our products to our end use customers is through the packaging and labeling on our products. And so for example, you know, just like our albums that we do, they're all acid and linen free paper. So what that means is that they're archival quality. So when you put your photos or your pictures into our albums, they won't degrade. You know, the paper won't won't uh, over time degrade and they won't turn yellow and all those kind of things you you kind of associate with old old style album. So we're, we have a very great quality product and we have to communicate that just through the labeling on the back of our packaging, because once your products get into these retailers, it's kind of up to them, you know, where they put it and how they display it. And we really don't have as much control over that as we would like. I think if you're smaller and, you know, one of the things about being a smaller company and you know, if you're a crafter or you're an artist and you're selling things at a craft fair, you actually get to communicate yeah. and talk directly to your customers, which is really, really yeah. nice. 
And then when you get bigger, like we are, how do you maintain that same sense of interaction Personalization. with your end yeah. use customer? You know, it's, yeah. you have to think about it because right now we don't really get to, and that's a problem yeah. for us. You know, I'm big into the archival thing. I don't want to spend all my time and all my effort making a scrapbook or making something and then have it biodegrade and turn yellow and fall apart. And I know that I've often gone into the craft stores and looked for those types of labels about, is it pH neutral? Is it archival? How long is it archival? Are are they pigment inks? And oftentimes there's very little to no information about that type of thing. Or there might be just one or two products just labeled a little tiny. But how do people know about that? I only learned about that because I was into fine art and I didn't want my work to get messed up, you know? So I think that's a really good point and a very interesting conundrum. So let's keep talking about educating our audience and about stories. And, you know, I think what you see at the crafts fairs is you see artists being able to tell stories around their artwork and become personal and create collectors. Because I think people want to buy into a story sometimes when they're buying art, particularly the higher end stuff. So you guys want to get into the internet and telling more stories around your work. Do you want to share a plan with us for that? <laughs> well, if I had one, I'd be, I'd be happy to share it. Um, we're still, you know, for us, it's the, the storytelling and the message that we want to give to our consumers. We're, we're very clear on that. I think the, the issue for us becomes, you know, the more the business side of it, you know, when you sell online, how much inventory do you maintain? Where do you maintain right. that inventory? Mm-hmm. You know, if you're going to go on Amazon, do you use Fulfilled by Amazon? Do you ship it out of your warehouse here in California? You know, it's the mm-hmm. it's the business Logistic. and logistical concerns around that. The storytelling, because we know ourselves and we know our company, that for us is probably the easiest part of all of it. It's It's really Mm. just the logistics about how to do it and do it efficiently. Because I think for us, you know, one of the concerns is that if you you start selling online, you have to maintain your inventory because you don't want to disappoint people. You know, if they if they come to you and they're and you've told them a great story and you've got them all excited about your product, you have to ship it, (laughs) you know, and you have to ship it on time. And so Yeah, and that means people to pick and pack and package and make it an experience, right? So you've got to have a system. Exactly. And then what warehouse, you know, you don't want to build, we don't want to build our own warehouse. So, you know, who do you choose as your warehouse partner? And are Hmm. they trustworthy and are they reliable? And then how many units do you order from your factory at one time? Because, you know, warehousing space is money and time is money. Mm -hmm. So you don't want your products to sit there because it's going to cost mm-hmm. you a lot of money. So it's all of those kind of things, Erin, that mm-hmm. that's kind of what keeps me up at night. You know, how do we, and a <laughs> lot of companies do it very successfully. I just want to make sure we're one of them, you know, that we're, right. that we're, you know, we're able to handle it. So, hey, well, maybe once you get it all figured out, we'll have a follow-up call and you'll share all your successes and secrets with us <laughs> for, yeah, for doing that's, that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Right now we're in the process of interviewing warehouses and thinking it all through. So we're, you know, we're going to figure it out. We just, you know, it's, it's interesting because I think probably for myself, I'm somebody who is very 
sort of right brain, left brain, and I'm creative. Mm -hmm. I was a designer, but I also am a business person. And even for me, this is a struggle trying to, you know, getting in and learning about logistics and shipping and warehousing. And when you have a small business, you know, those are the kind of things that you really have to sort of start to figure out for yourself and then hope that you grow to the point where you can hire somebody to kind of help you with it. But even if you outsource some of it, you still have to understand it, right? Because you have to understand how it works. And um, being a small business and being an uh, entrepreneur means you have to tackle some of these things, which are probably way outside your comfort zone, Mm -hmm. but you have to learn it, right? You have to put yourself out there and learn it. So that's what we're doing. Yeah, I I totally understand because when I started iConnect Crafts, I've done all my own picking and packing and shipping. Like I have an in-house inventory and I I had to figure out how to package them, how to label them, how to put the hazard stickers on. And I still do that and ship everything ourselves because we're very small. But it's interesting and it's fascinating. In fact, here's a really weird side story. My husband is actually a engineer and works in inventory management. Essentially, he creates these huge warehouses where they automate everything. And it's funny because um, they were working with a company trying to sort milk crates and they use laser beams and all the science and technology and they couldn't get these black milk crates to register. Black milk crate won't register. Black milk crate won't register. I said, what are you shooting it with? Well, we use a laser to scan the colors and then it goes into the computer and blah, blah, blah. I said, and they're black? (laughs) Can you see where this is going? I was like, you know, black yes. absorbs all light, right, honey? <laughs> That's so it's hilarious. A whole science, right? It's a whole science, it inventory is. and shipping and product control, but you can do it on a small level. Jean, in one of our previous episodes, she sells a lot of, she's a jewelry maker and her thing is enameling. So she sells enameling tools and supplies. She has a whole inventory in her basement, beautiful setup and system, but it's in-house and she uses Etsy. Etsy apparently has, um, and Shopify have both incorporated shipping labels into their software so that the the small crafter can just take an order, print out the label, stick it on their product, as long as you have space in your house. So there are ways, uh, but it sounds like you want to do it at scale. (laughs) And that always creates complication. Yeah, it does. And, you know, the thing for us is we, um, we're we already sort of a bigger business than that. So we're yeah. sort of starting in the middle. Like, how do we oh, how do we scale up, you know, and, and get some of this stuff on? Yeah. And Amazon, I think, is a good place to have your products. Um, we don't we wouldn't have a lot of competition on there. But, you know, you can also mm-hmm. with the fees they charge, you can get really hurt. So we have to be a little careful. Yeah. So we're, we're figuring all that out, Erin. So once I do, we'll have another call and I can tell you everything I yeah. learned. <laughs> it's been my goal with all these interviews, all the research I've been doing, my whole academic career to figure out how to make money with your art. And I imagine that that's probably what you're trying to do too, right? We all want to do something that we love for a living. Yeah, totally. Who wouldn't? Who wants a dead-end job? So, after all this research and all these interviews, I've discovered four secrets, the four top secrets to making money with your art. And now I have a 12-page report outlining the four top secrets to 
making money with your art. You can download this guide for free at howtomakemoneywithyourart.com. That's right, I got that domain name. So just head on over to howtomakemoneywithyourart.com, all spelled out, no numbers, and get your free report on how to make money with your art. Well, that is a great segue, actually, into the next step of the appeal system, which is automating and amplifying. How do you get bigger? How do you amplify through automation? It segues perfectly. So, you know, how do you do that? Once you start selling a little, how do you sell more? Oh, gosh. I don't know if it's through automation. You know, for us, um, what it is, is it's more relationships. Mm-hmm. So for us, what it is, is once we establish a relationship with the buyer, right, and we've done a very, very good mm-hmm. job for them, you know, we make sure that when we go into a new account, that we really put the time and effort into making sure that things go well. And, you know, there's always something that happens, mm-hmm. like there's stuff that happens that you can't control, right? But what we do is we make a big effort to make sure that we, if we say we're going to do something you know, we say we're going to ship, we ship on time. If we owe them Mm -hmm. a cost, if we owe them costing, we send them the costing on time. Right. So we really try to build like these strong relationships and then we build and grow our business based on that. So once a buyer trusts us and knows that we're going to do a good job for them, and once our products sell through at retail, they're more likely to come back then and say, hey, what else do you have? Right. Um, So it's really relationships. Right. Yeah. What is sell through? So if our products, if the, the products perform at retail. So if the end use customer likes our products and picks them up and actually buys them, that's mm-hmm. what we want. So we want to help our retailers drive their own profitability. Right. So we do right. everything that's with kind sell-through. of. Um, I've heard that. Yeah. Yeah. Like how that your products I just perform wanted to at define retail, it. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, that's good. You know, with automation and amplifying, do you reach out to your buyers and remind them of your presence on a regular basis, like quarterly? Or how do you reach out to your buyers and get them to come back besides the sell through? We do it weekly. So we um, oh. we talk to our re- we talk to our buyers probably every week. We send them something. The other thing wow. I do, Erin, is that I try to become. When I say me, I mean our company. We try to become an important resource for them. So Uh I'll give you an example. When I went to the UK, I was in the UK for a couple weeks before Christmas and I had meetings um, with buyers. I had a meeting with the Victoria and Albert Museum in London to talk about licensing artwork for them. And then I did a lot of, yeah, it was really fun. And I did a lot of um, shopping, like trend shopping and what we call like competitive shopping and trend shopping to see what was out in the stores. And when I come home from a trip like that, I'll put together a report about what I saw. So I'll put together what I call kind of a trend report showing, you mm-hmm. know, what kind of trends I saw in the stores and what stores I went to. And it's a really comprehensive, I think this last report was almost 75 pages of pictures. Oh, wow. Do you and, take pictures? You no, know, I do. Yeah. I take pictures in all the Can stores. Do you ever get kicked out? <laughs> I've gotten kicked out a couple times, but not recently. I'm getting a lot better at it. And I think having the phone helps, you know, when it, before the, the, the um, cell phone photos, when we used to have our little cameras and we would try to do it, we'd get caught a lot more often. But um, now I can be. Yeah, I've been kicked out. 
<laughs> I've been kicked out for taking pictures of stuff in, in stores. And I was just being a fine artist. I was just taking picture of reflections off of glass. Like, Yeah. Yeah. Um, I haven't gotten kicked out lately, but, you know, it's it's happened. <laughs> I've actually been chased down the street and screamed <gasps> at him. No! You know, I've had all kinds of stuff happen. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> you know, and the idea really isn't isn't to copy, but the idea is to really see what kind of things retailers have, how they're displayed how they're packaged, uh-huh. you know, what kind of trends we see happening. And I'll go to a lot of the high-end stores and take pictures because the trends tend to kind of start and you start to sort of see what's happening at retail because one of the things that's a complexity for our business is that we really have to design products almost a year ahead of when they're going to hit in retail. So we have wow. to know, we have to be able to predict what is going to be popular, what's going to be Trending, you trending. know, a year from yeah. now. Yeah, like trending. What kind of what kind of look, what kind of colors, what kind of fabrics, you know, what kind of um, icons, you know, those kind of mm-hmm. things, we have to be able to kind of predict that. So what I'll do is when I go to a trade show or I go shopping or I, even if I go to downtown LA and I hit some of the really cool trendy areas of LA where there's a lot of good shops, I'll always come back and put together a little report about what I saw. Uh-huh. Now those reports, they go to my factories and they go to my retailers. So what that oh. does is that kind of says to my retailers, hey guys, hey, this is what I saw happening. And that gives them a little ammunition to help with their business, right? Because they're nice. going to be thinking about that themselves and they are not going to get the chance to travel the places that I get to go, right? They're, they're going to go to different places. Mm-hmm. And so if I can become important to them by feeding them information, that helps them with their business, that's another way that we kind of keep that connection. And then by sharing it with our factories, our factories see what our retailers are seeing. And then it also helps them develop product or be on the lookout for things that might support our business as well. So it's just kind of a way that we share kind of the information across our business partners to kind of keep everybody informed and, and then we become more important to them. Yeah, well, you become an authority on the trends and it keeps you in front of them. That's great. That's brilliant. And it helps and it helps them. You know, it gives them a little bit of more information to run their own businesses. Right. You know, I think it's interesting. And don't the trends, aren't the trends becoming faster? So it used to be like Paris was the hub of fashion and design and that type of stuff. And it took a year or two to trickle down to the rural areas in America, right? But aren't trends right. becoming much faster with Instagram and the internet and so forth and so on? Yeah, much faster and much more global. And um, it really is interesting when I used to be in apparel, we used to go to the big capitals of Europe and and kind of trend shop um, for ideas. And mm-hmm. And what's happened now is that it's a lot more global. And for example, mm. there's a lot of trends that come out of, you know, East Asia. There's trends that come out of Africa. There's trends that come out of South America, especially, mm. you know, Brazil and Uruguay. There's mm. trends that co- still come out of LA and points in the US. And basically, it's a much faster moving, it's much faster moving and it's much more global, right? But if, right. it depends on your market. So we can't be too fast because we sell kind of middle America mass retail and those people are not right. looking for the 
the super, super trendy stuff, right? They're looking for right. things that fit into their home decor that are look fresh and modern, but aren't really far out there. With our stationary products, we can be a little bit more trend-driven because it's a little bit mm-hmm. less, it's a, le- a less expensive item. It's more of a consumable. It's not going to sit in your house for three years. You're going to use it for a season, fill up your notebook and toss it, right? So right. there's different ty- types it. of trends that you can apply <laughs> to different products. Unless you're one of those journalers that keeps everything, but uh, guilty. <laughs> yeah, you and the rest of the world, right? I'm the one that tosses my notebook. Well, that's so you know them. awesome. And you know, one of the things I I kind of want to ask about here is the idea of with it being global and with it being accessible through Instagram and blog posts and stuff. Are there any like favorite blogs or Instagram accounts or people that you kind of think are trendsetters that? Somebody who can't travel like you could watch and look at that are really on the up and up. Do you have any favorites? I do. And you're going to ask me and I'm going to have to look at my Instagram and see who they are. But, you know, I just I like such a variety of things because I just actually is funny because what I'll do is I'll one thing will kind of lead me to another. So, for example, Mm -hmm. there's a rabbit hole. Right. And you start to go down this little rabbit hole and you sort of find more and more people that you like. So um, I grew up in the in Wisconsin in a little town called Whitewater, mm. and there's um, ah. a little town next to our town called Elkhorn, Wisconsin, and there's a camp there that this couple from Chicago has sort of restored called Camp Wandawiga, and it's <laughs> it always fascinates me because it's like this little Wisconsin lake camp, but it's like this super trendy thing now. Like they have products what? out there, and they're you know it's just yeah it's just really really cool. So I follow them. And what I like about okay. them is they'll always post things from other people that they like. And so uh-huh. I'll find like all these interesting people to follow who are these super creative, talented forces because I follow this little camp in Wisconsin <laughs> that just happens to be by my hometown. <laughs> but, you know, that's the kind of thing I like to do. Like when you find somebody that you think is doing something really cool, I look and yeah. see who they're following. And what kind of things mm. they like. And it really opened up this whole world of, you know, photographers who are doing these beautiful mm-hmm. things. And then, you know, product people. And it is, it's like falling down the rabbit hole. If I get on this right. thing, if I get on Instagram, I'm, I just have my team's Here, like, where are you? We need to work. And I'm like, I'm, I'm on Instagram getting inspired, right? But there's a lot out there. So there I don't is. know how to narrow that down for you. I'm. I'm looking at my Instagram and I'm thinking, oh my God, like I really. No, no, um, don't go down that rabbit hole. Not right now. Not (laughs) right now. We'll post stuff down down. below. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) We'll post stuff down below. So any of the links that we talk about in these episodes always go right down below. We do a transcript. And so we can share some of those things. But no, I think it's a great tip that if you find somebody that you think is really innovative and really inspirational to look at who they are looking at as well. Great advice. So, okay, that leads us into licensing and contracts and copyright. Ooh, fun stuff. Are there any experiences or stories that you would like to or could share about the licensing process. And actually, I do want to hit on some of the stories you told me when we first met about helping these manufacturers become brands and licensing the design onto what you told me one about a soccer ball. 
where it was just plain yes. recyclable and you turned it into this brand, this amazing brand. So let's talk about licensing and contract and copyright and branding because they all kind of roll together. Well, branding is a little bit separate. So what we do with branding, and we still do this um, as a little part of our business, will help companies who want to enter the market with their own brand, sort of build a brand, right? And mm-hmm. that build is a, a brand, like build a bear. In- <laughs> exactly, build a brand. Um, but that's a whole process that really revolves around thinking through the product, the naming, the design of the product. So I think when we met, I had done a company, worked with a company, and they were a little soccer ball manufacturer out of Nanjing, China. And they were selling these soccer balls on Amazon for $6. And they wanted to come to the US and they wanted to build a soccer ball brand. And Mm -hmm. there was just a lot of work to do. Basically, the only thing they could really do was make a soccer ball, right? But they didn't really have Mm -hmm. any design. They didn't have anything that would make them a brand. So we had to think of a name for the brand. And Mm -hmm. the catch there is that it has to make sense and it has to be trademarkable, right? And there's in in the sports ball and sports category, it just felt like every single name was taken. I mean, there, it's very, very difficult to get a trademark and come up with a name that makes sense. So the way that I did it was I went and um, our target our target audience was basically 12 to 17 year old kind of teenage girls and boys um, playing soccer. And yeah. the way that I actually came up with a name, Erin, was I went to the AAU or the, you know, the club teams, the soccer club teams mm-hmm. in that age range. And I looked at what names kept popping up because my son used to play soccer. And I know that sometimes those teams kind of come up with their own names. And yeah. I thought, well, if it's popular name for a team, it might be a good name for a soccer ball. So yeah, I did my research. So you went to your target market again. Right. Went to the target market and kind of thought, okay, how do we find a name? Right. So I came up with three or four names and the name that we settled on that we all really liked was chaos, um, spelled Mm K-A-O-S. And as it turns out, we could get the trademark. Right. So we, and we thought that was really a fun name for a soccer ball. Yeah. And so we came up with a whole like new series of really, really cool designs kind of targeting both girls and boys. And there almost became sort of these collectible, really cool soccer balls. And the first year that we launched the brand, we did a website, we did videos, we did the design of the balls. You know, we created Mm -hmm. this brand. Um, Neiman Marcus came in and put one of our balls in their Christmas catalog. And I think they bought 10,000 units for $40 a ball. And they sold out. And I mean, this just shows you the power of, you know, branding and design, product design. You know, this company that was selling $6 soccer balls on Amazon now is selling to, it has a ball in the Neiman Marcus Christmas catalog in 2018 for $40. And we haven't changed anything but the brand and the design, right? Right. It's the same soccer ball. Right. So trademark is a little bit different than copyright. Let's talk about that just for a second. So trademark versus copyright. Well, I'm not a lawyer, so I only know from my own experience. Um, you know, when we, when we are, <laughs> disclaimer, yeah, so don't, you know, get, get legal advice <laughs> on this, but we trademark all of the brand names that we're going to be using on our product to make sure that we can own them because you don't want to spend time Good. building up a brand name and then you don't actually own the name or you get sued down the line. So we make sure that with the brand names that we put on our products, they're all trademarked, Right. Our business right. name is mm-hmm. trademarked. So that's a trademark. 
copyright, I think, applies to a lot of different types of intellectual property. We don't bother to copyright anything because it doesn't really matter. Our designs move in and out so quickly. And we make sure, like I said, that we document the creation of our designs, that we don't really bother with copyright in this business. But you put your business name, which is trademark, and your date on every design, we do. which is essentially do. copywriting. So you're not registering your copyright, but you are claiming your copyright by putting your name and your date on it. Um, according to my reading, and once again, disclaimer here, <laughs> not a lawyer, but my understanding of copyright is that if you sign and date your artwork, it is actually already automatically copyrighted to the artist for life plus 75 years. But that is different than registering your copyright, where you register your copyright is you fill out a form online with the United States government. It costs like $30. And that allows you to get more money or sue somebody and win easier if they infringe on your copyright. So you can do copyright without registering copyright. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's what I heard. That's kind of why we do it that way. Because we just do so many designs, it just wouldn't pay for us to register everything that we do. And we really just want to have, I think for us, it's really just having some, a little bit of protection in case anybody comes to us and says, hey, you used our design. You know, I want to have a record of the fact that, you know, when we created it, that it was an an in-house design. You know, and I also want to just make sure that people aren't out there taking our designs. But, you know, we, we are very design fluid. You know, we just keep designing new products. Mm. So, you know, we try to be a step ahead anyway. If somebody wants to knock off one of our old things, I mean, good luck. You know, we've moved on. So we try to, it's old. So, you know, we, we try to just manage it that way. But I do, I do put our, our name and date on everything. Right. I think that's awesome. And then you mentioned earlier that you like to buy artwork outright, that you don't do a lot of licensing and, and so forth and so on. But what kind of contracts do you keep in-house and what kind of contracts would you advise everybody to have on hand? Oh, that's a good question. So basically, we just have contractual, you know, when we use freelance designers, I have contracts with them just saying that the design that we purchase is exclusive to us and Mm -hmm. not to be shared or reused with another client. Mm -hmm. They're just pretty standard contracts. You know, we have contracts with some of the people who help us with sales. We have contracts with I mean, we don't, we don't, we have contracts with our factory partners um, to make sure right. that we're, how we're paid, when we're paid, making sure that there's like non-competes and that they don't disclose any of our proprietary information to other people who might be using that same factory. So, you know, it's good right. to have a lawyer on hand to kind of help with all this to make sure that you're protected. Right. I've heard stories about some of the Chinese manufacturers through, um, what's that website? There's a website now that you can go and Alba, is it? You know what I'm talking about? And they say that, oh, if you get a Alibaba, is that it? Yeah, Alibaba, I guess. (laughs) What did I call it? (laughs) 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 But, you know, I've heard rumors that you can get stuff manufactured and that they're running your product during the day and then they'll run product knockoffs at night. Is there any truth to that? So I've been working over in China for more than 30 years. Okay, so that tells you how old I am. But I think that (laughs) 30, you just, yeah. So you have to, I think that what you have to do is you just have to always assume that they're going to copy everything. 
because it isn't the same, it isn't the same culture and Mm -hmm. they don't see anything wrong with it. And I think it's changing a little bit, but I think that you have to be very, very, very careful. And it's like a, it's, it's a little bit dangerous if you don't know what you're doing because they will knock you off, they will copy you, and they will see nothing wrong with it. And you really have no recourse because, I mean, what are you going to do, get a lawyer in China? All they'll do is change their company name and close and open up somewhere else and you're still not going to get mm. your money back. So I think it's very, very important to find, you know, if you're going to put your toe in that water, then like we do every day, you know, we have really good factory partners, but we have mm-hmm. long-term factory partner relationships with people that we really trust. And, you know, that takes time and that takes some research to find those right partners because you can get, you know, I have a very good friend who started a children's shoe business and the children's shoe business that she started with a factory in China was very successful. And she went through a divorce and had to kind of put the business on hold for about a year while Mm. she figured everything out with her personal life here. And during that time, the factory basically took her designs and took her name and sold all over the world, you know, her designs and made millions. And she found out about it when she went back to them and showed up at the factory and saw that they were shipping and selling her brand name product basically all over the world. I mean, all over China, all over Europe. and, And not paying her any royalties. And not paying her anything. And she you know, she uh, got a lawyer and I think it's still, you know, eight years later, they're still trying to resolve oh. it. And it's, you know, it's just a situation that happens every single day. And you just, you know, there's just really, you just really have to be careful who you do business with. Right. You've got to cultivate relationships, like you were saying. Got to cultivate relationships and it's a different culture. And this is true anywhere in the world. You know, I've sourced in, you know, all over the world. You can't look at business in other countries with your American glasses on, right? Because the culture that Mm. you're working in is completely different. You can't have the expectations that they're going to have the same understanding of ethics and business practices that you have. So you really have to have those conversations. You can't go in and assume anything because Mm. you'll get hurt. Right, right. And it sounds like you really have to hustle and never turn your back. You know, you've got to stay yes, in contact. I would say that's you've true. Gotta, you know, maybe she, you were saying, I love your advice about how you sent them, your manufacturers and your buyers, your reports every week so that you're always hustling. You're always on top of their mind, you know, because they're, they want to make money. And if you, if they see an opportunity to make money, I guess, and you're not, there with them in the forefront of their mind, they're going to continue to make money regardless of you or not. They are. And, you know, I think for us, we communicate every day with our factories. So we are really in constant communication. And, you know, with the time difference, it usually means, you know, I'm, I'm on WeChat at night um, talking to them, but we really keep that relationship tight and close and mm-hmm. we keep everybody informed and we, we go there. You know, I go over there to visit the factories at least twice a year. Um, because there's nothing better than showing up, right, to see what's going on. So, you know, we make a big effort to keep that relationship really close and make sure that we are letting everybody know what's going on and that we drive revenue for, we try to really drive revenue because that's the bottom line. So 
if we're giving yeah. orders to our factories and our retailers are selling our products and everybody's making money, then everybody's happy, right? Right. It's a relationship. It and it takes it's work. It's a relationship. Wow. Really good advice. Really good advice. So success, the last letter in the appeal system, art, product, presentation, educating, automating and amplifying, licensing and contracts, and then success and stories. What does success look for like for you? I mean, you have done some amazing, incredible things and you have so many cool stories. Um, I could just sit and talk to you all day about all this stuff. You're but, so funny. <laughs> <laughs> call me a geek. <laughs> I'm an art geek. But it's a fun business, Erin. You know, it's really yeah. fun. And it's like, you know, I always think we're really lucky that we get to do what we would do for a hobby, but we get to make a living at it. And I think that's kind of the goal that people should have. You know, if you can create a living and a life out of something that you really enjoy doing, I think that that's, then you're really lucky. Yeah. So what would you say your biggest success has been? And what are you most proud of? Wow, that's really interesting. I, you know, because there's so many things that I have really enjoyed doing. I think in the company that I was with before I before I bought Mix, we did uh, 35 consumer brands in basically a year and a half. And, you know, just designing brand names and designing products and seeing that success at retail. I mean, we were in, you know, we got into some of the best retailers. Like I said, we were in Neiman Marcus, we were in Crate and Barrel, we were in Nordstrom, we had big success online. And, you know, to, to build a team of people, I think I built a team of 60 people in a year and a half and we did 35 brands. That was wow, really amazing. That is um, huge. But then coming, it's huge and it's creativity on a volume, a volume scale. But, you know, then coming here, it's been great because building a team, a core team of people and being able to have a company that is very, where we all work really closely together and we've had a lot of success with our retail partners has just been really, really fun. And we try to run a company that, I try to run a company that supports the women who really, who work for us. So, you know, just being able to offer, you know, full ba- full paid medical benefits and vacation. And, um, you know, we offer full paid AFLAC accident insurance and, you know, being wow, able to take awesome. the money we make and support families who actually, you know, work for us. I think it's really important. And, um, that allows, you know, the women who work here to support their families and their communities and, you know, raise their kids. And I think it just builds when you have a small, yeah. a, a small business that is, that's able to do that, you really can help build up the community that you're a part of. And I think that's been really rewarding. Yeah, I think that is really an amazing measure of success. The idea of being able to work with people you love, doing something you love and support them at it. That is the definition of success for me too. I, I, I'm just jealous. I'm speechless. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's important. You know, it's, it helps strengthen the community. And, you know, we're putting creative, fun things out there. And we're being able to make a living doing it. So I think it's, uh, you know, we have a lot of kids between us here. We, we have a lot of uh, families. Yeah. And, you know, we have people who take care of their aging parents. And we have kids. And we have pets and we have, you know, all those things that then they rely on us to support them. So yeah, it's really rewarding to be able to do that. Yeah. Do you guys ever um, celebrate your successes? I always talk about, I think artists don't celebrate their successes enough and we don't share our successes enough because we think it's like bragging. But do you do anything fun for you guys in your business and 
to celebrate when you get into a new store or you have a really good product or, or something like that? Oh, we do that all the time. We we really like cake. <laughs> so we, <laughs> we, uh, we, have, a, like we have a really good uh, little French bakery in town. So we tend to celebrate with a lot of cake and, um, <laughs> and uh, going out to lunch and doing things like that. So I think that's a really, really important thing to bring up, Erin, that that is really important. And I think for me, that's been something that personally I've struggled with because I always, you know, I was raised in a very uh, Midwestern kind of family where that was sort of considered bragging and showing off and you just didn't do it. Yeah. Right. And I think that yeah. um, really it's important, especially when you're in a team and, you know, celebrating the wins and, you know, whether it's if someone's having a baby, you know, one of our team members mm-hmm. is about to have a baby in a couple of weeks Aww. and, you know, or if it's somebody, you know, that, got a new pet or it's opening a new account or whatever. We try to really mm-hmm. do something special to kind of celebrate those things that are important to us as a team. So. Yeah, you got to. And I think women downplay what we do a lot too, because it's not feminine to brag or something. I don't know. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think that it's really interesting because um, I think men talk about themselves and their success a lot more. And I think I'm still really uncomfortable when people ask me about things and, and I have to talk about our successes and things. It makes me a little, I always feel like I'm going to jinx it. So I'd rather, I'd rather um, <laughs> sort of <laughs> not talk about it and just do it and then um, right. be able to just really appreciate it, you know, from, uh, it's it's just still, it's, you know, that's just something that I think is probably generational for me too. It's, you know, you just don't talk about that stuff. Mm-hmm. And Whenever I have to, I get really uncomfortable and I would just rather keep it quiet and do it and, you know, share the success You're a mover and a shaker. Yeah. No, I get it. And I think it's something that we have to talk about. That's why I always bring it up kind of towards the end of the um, episode is that I think you have to talk about your successes and we have to kind of change the way we talk about our art and our success because people want to hear the story of the art and the story of the success of the art. So maybe if you can detach from it. I think it's true. And I think that it gives people sort of hope that they can do it themselves. And I I do think one thing that's really important too, and I think that, you know, it's, it's one thing to sort of celebrate your own success, which it still kind of makes me uncomfortable. But I think that I'm very good at celebrating the success of my friends. And I think that as a community of women, um, I have a lot of friends that are entrepreneurs and, you know, nothing makes me happier than sort of celebrating their success and helping them. And I think having that sort of uh, posse of women friends who help you and who you can turn to for questions and that will support you, uh, you know, having a business is a lot of highs and a lot of lows and it's like a roller coaster, right? And having, mm-hmm. and you know, I mean, there's days when you're just like, what the hell did I do? Right. And then there's days <laughs> right. where you're like, woohoo, you know, everything's going great. And just having a, um, a group of women that you can, a uh, women friends who will support you and that you can call on when you need advice or help has yeah. been really important for me to build that network. And then we I celebrate each other's idea. Business. Yeah. And I love the idea of if, if you can't celebrate your own, you could hold up your friends and then they'll hold up you. And it doesn't feel so, braggadocious. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's, it's interesting having women who are um, friends of mine who've been friends for years who are across all different kinds of businesses, you know, and, yeah. um, you know, they're lawyers or they're realtors or they're, you know, they're in uh, fields that are just quite 
are, are quite a bit different than this field, but, you know, they mm-hmm. always have good advice and we get together and we talk about things and it's just good to have a support network. Yeah, definitely. So true. So in closing, the last question that I always ask is books, because I'm a total bibliophile. Um, are there any books that you would recommend or that you would give as a gift to someone? They don't even have to be art or design related. What are your favorite books that you would recommend to people to pick up and read? Oh my gosh, Erin, I can't even talk about this. I have so many books. I'm like, I have, <laughs> I'm the person that has like stacks of books at home, like stacks and stacks and stacks. And you know, Me I too. just don't even know how to answer this because I literally have like <laughs> piles and piles of books at home and I'm always reading. Okay, what are you but, reading you know, right reading now? Lot, well, actually right now I'm reading the Paris Review. I just got a copy of the Paris mm. Review and I'm reading that. Um, so I'm mm. not reading a book. I'm just trying to get mm-hmm. through my recent copy of that. So I like to read things that really don't relate to work. And I, yeah. I read a lot of things like more for to kind of, I think I use reading to kind of put my mind on something else to give my mind a break from business. And so I tend to read things that are way off topic of what my business is, you know, and um, it just keeps me balanced. No, but that's good. It keeps me a little more balanced. Yeah. It's like a relaxation. I I think that's good though. So the Paris review, is that like a um, flyer or like a something like a no, local it's like paper a, out of it's Paris. It's like a periodical or? that it's it's a, it's a periodical that comes. It's like a um, a journal of different types of writing that they kind of compile, and it's it's a literary magazine. So they feature you know original writing, some art, some they do reviews oh. or interviews with famous writers. So it's just a really it comes out. I think I get it quarterly. I mean, I just whenever it shows up, I read it, and um, it really it's just this sort of a little. Uh, very sort of an intellectual break for me that I just, it's just, I find it very relaxing and it makes me feel no, smart. That sounds fascinating. <laughs> that doesn't sound unrelated. That sounds really fascinating because it's art, all the arts, right? It is. It is. And um, it, it's just something that, you know, when it comes, I sort of dive into it and read it all and then I'll put it down and pick up something else. But yeah, I really enjoy it. Um, there, I read a lot of magazines too, because, you know, there's a lot of like with Vanity Fair, I read The New Yorker, mm-hmm. I read Vogue. Mm-hmm. That's also where you pick up a lot of information for your business, you know, and trends and yeah. things. And sometimes things seem unrelated, but then you'll, you start to get out in the world and look around and you start to see this sort of pattern of things that are happening. Right. And that really helps inform your business direction. I think that's brilliant. Yeah. And that's kind of why I asked that question at the end about books, because you have to be well-rounded and there is a pattern that starts to accumulate when you read different things out of different genres and yeah, you start to see it. There is, there is. And you know, the other thing, the travel magazines, I'll look a lot on, you know, like Condé Nast Traveler and Hmm. I read the cooking magazines because in those magazines, you'll always find little tidbits of, you know, new shops that have opened and new restaurants Hmm. that have opened and new places in the world where something might be happening in the creative field. And I, keep in, I'm trying to think of the name of the program. It's Microsoft, uh, Microsoft OneNote. What I do in Microsoft OneNote is I keep a tab for each city around the world that I have visited or I'm interested in visiting. And I put in there, I save all these little tidbits I find in magazines. So if it's a new hotel that's opening up or a new shop or a new restaurant, and I think it looks interesting, I'll pop it into Microsoft OneNote under the city 
And then when I'm uh-huh. traveling, I'll pull up that city file and I'll look and see, okay, there's this new store that opened up in this new area. And that's kind of how I'll know where to trend shop, where to stay, where to eat. So I do, I, I, through all these periodicals and all this reading, I save these little tidbits of information so that when I travel, I know where to go. Oh, what a great tip. That's awesome. Very cool. Yeah. That way you don't have to save the whole magazine. You can just <laughs> save the information. And, you know, things are so much online now, you can just kind of cut and paste. And so I have like in my little notebook, I have London, I have Palm Springs, Florence, LA, New York, Santa Monica, Hong Kong, Shanghai, Copenhagen. Wow. San Diego, Tokyo. I have a whole little list of cities. I have Phoenix. And I just keep putting little things in there. And then if I, if I travel, I can, I can pull it up. Brilliant. What a great tip. Well, Patty, thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure talking to you. Well, thanks, Erin. It's good to reconnect. We have to stay in touch more. You have to let me know what I you're doing. I would love that. <laughs> I will. I will. Well, that's it for the Artist Appeals. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed recording it. I just love talking with all these artists and business people. It's phenomenal, and I've learned so much. I hope you've learned something, too. You can get more information. You can check out some of the links that we talked about in these podcasts at theartistappeals.com. That's theartistappeals, A-P-P-E-A-L-S.com. Thanks and have a good one.